Listen now to the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So reads this text of Scripture. In a letter like Romans, meaning in such a careful systematic handling of the gospel followed by its key implications and that's a good way to summarize what Romans is in a letter like Romans it's really interesting to see what topics God's spirit moved his apostle to address it's interesting for instance to see that that a humble self-perception formed according to the spiritual gifting God has given, is the primary indicator of a life that's been offered to him as a sacrifice and a mind that's being transformed by his renewing work. It's interesting to see that a humble self-perception that's formed according to our spiritual gifting is the first and foremost characteristic of that, of a sacrificed life, of, of a person offering their bodies to God as a living sacrifice and being transformed by the renewal of their mind. Humble self-perception according to God's spiritual gifting. It's an amazing truth. That's a, a life-altering truth. That's the truth, as we were just talking about it with the starting point class, that suggests that, that this hour spent together on Sunday is the, the most primary and basic hour of our week. And it's this hour that's the launching pad for whatever it is that we do during the week, however it is that we spend ourselves and go forth on mission. And then as we are spent and exhausted and, and in need of fellowship and refreshment, we come back to this central place from which the week is launched. That's the way Romans 12 talks about our faith working. What we do here is foundational to everything else we do, even to how we understand ourselves in our doing of it. That's amazing. It's amazing to see that God's Spirit has moved His Apostle to communicate that to the church. That's the first. It's also interesting that our submission to governing authorities is, is tucked in between two separate charges to love one another sincerely and to love one another selflessly. Even to love our enemies that our relationship to government as Christians is put in between those two so that the context is cast for it in that way. 
But it's also quite interesting that the final teaching in this lengthy letter focuses on how to accept one another in the body of Christ. How to accept one another in the body of Christ with regard to differing opinions about what's acceptable to God and what isn't. 14.1 through 15.13 are talking about that. Maintaining unity in the church even while there are matters that each of us are involved in that we would differ on and that might divide us and even separate us. It's interesting to me that the final teaching in this letter that's so meticulously crafted to communicate the gospel is going to address the unity of the church on disputable matters. That's where Paul finishes. We could be refreshed just by recognizing that. It should be something that awakens our imagination for what it looks like, for instance, to hear Paul's instruction from Ephesians 4 that we should be making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because we are one body and there's one Spirit and one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We should be one body. But it's hard work to stay there. Wow, is it hard work. So it's quite interesting that the final teaching in this lengthy letter focuses on how to accept one another in the body of Christ with regard to differing opinions on what each of us believes is acceptable to God and what isn't. Because of that, we're going to hear from different voices here in chapter 14. I'm covering verses 1 through 4 this week. Nick Connor, God willing, will preach verses 5 through 9 next Sunday. Then Todd Walker will handle verses 10 through 19 the following week before I return with verses 20 through 23, and then we'll head off in the, final, the following week into chapter 15. It's a bit of a strange division that we're using here because the text really does seem to break down into four pretty discernible sections, and I'm going to give them to you here for those of you who like to study the scriptures and see the the, the outlines in the text. Really, I would say that this section from 14.1 to 15.13 divides into four parts. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 14 is the opening section. Then verses 13 to 23. I'm not even going to summarize these right now. I'm just going to give them to you, and we'll, we'll make something of this down the road a ways. So 14, 20, or 13 to 23 is section 2. Then the first six verses of chapter 15, 1 through 6, um, not 1 through 7 as you might see in your, um, your ESV division there, 15, 1 through 6, and then finally 15, 17 to 13, or 7 to 13, I'm sorry, 15, 7 to 13 is section 4. Um, that, that looks like a good thematic subject type uh, exegetical breakdown of this passage into segments. But we're not preaching it in that way. In fact, we're, we're messing it all up uh, with the order that I just gave you as we go verses 1 to 4, 5 to 9, and 10 to 19. I would just say that the whole of this section from 14.1 to 15.13, the whole of it is so tightly interwoven thematically that I think there are different ways to divide it even though you can see some clear divisions in the text. And I'm not sure at this point 
that those divisions would be the ones that are most helpful to us. Because this is so thematically interwoven, I actually think that it would help to hear different voices on similar theme in order to pick up things differently because this section is so important for life together in the body of Christ. So more than the outline of the text, we want to hear from different voices. And so we've divided it up essentially according to where we see principle-type statements that are made in the text. And there will be some in each of the three sections that you hear over the next three weeks. All of that said, and sorry for that technicality, if you're visiting with us this morning, that didn't make any difference to you whatsoever. And I recognize that, right? But for those of us who have been going through this letter together, little, little points of reference like that from time to time can be helpful. It seems almost certain that this dispute that we're talking about here in 14.1 to 15.13 is between Jews and Gentiles. Jews who believe that something of Old Testament dietary laws should continue on into the New Testament church and Gentiles who don't believe so. Now that's far from a, 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 an entirely agreeable conclusion. There's a lot of difference on what the problem might be or the set of problems might be here in the Roman church that Paul's addressing at this point. But that's the one that seems to have the greatest attestation if you just look at the letter as a whole and see that one more time in this letter, as has happened many times before, there's a Jew-Gentile distinction going on that's threatening the unity of the church. And so it appears as though that's the best way to understand it. But this charge then is to accept one another, to welcome one another. Welcome is the word we see in the ESV, New American Standard, New International Version, New Living Translation. Each use the word accept. So there's a, a sense of what's being told here. The charge is to accept one another, to welcome one another, despite these differences that as we see, if this is the issue, dietary law and how that should come over into the New Testament, this is a quarrel over the content of God's word. All right? The Jews that are coming to faith in Christ aren't just creating a problem out of nothing. They're trying to understand how their Old Testament fits into their New Testament. What the transition is like from the experience of being a faithful Jew living according to God's word under the Old Covenant and what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ in a new covenant community. So it's no small matter. And yet the charge that we see here in our opening section, the reason we've stopped where we have is because we've heard that charge by the time we get through verse 4. And as we come back in 15.7, we see that that charge is repeated there as this section is nearing an end, this is the heart of the matter, to accept one another, to welcome one another, despite these differences that we feel. This charge, to quote one commentator, begins the section in 14.1, and it's repeated again at the end, 15.7. Paul accentuates the theme of mutuality sounded in this last verse, 15.7 as welcome one another. He, he accentuates this theme of mutuality with that reference plus three other one another's that appear throughout this section. Don't pass judgment on one another, 
That's in 1413. Let's pursue what makes for peace and for building one another up. Mutuality in 1419. And then may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that, that you're, you're living together with one another in unity because of Christ. So that's the key theme that runs through this is the church remaining unified even while differing over disputable and important but non-central matters. So th since this is a theme that runs right through this letter, I would say with another, we should assume a situation here in which Jewish Christians are priding themselves in their strict piety and are condemning those who don't adopt that same standard. There's the problem from the Jewish side. While many Gentile Christians finding no value in such practices are flaunting their freedom and judging or, or looking down on those whom they consider to be foolishly weak about living into their freedom in Christ. That's an adapted summary statement from Doug Moo, and I appreciate it. It's one of the reasons I've used it. Let me read it again. We should assume that a situation here is one in which Jewish Christians are priding themselves on their strict piety and condemning those who don't adopt the same standard, while many Gentile Christians finding no value in such practices are flaunting their freedom and judging or looking down on those whom they consider to be foolishly weak about living into their freedom in Christ. So there's the dispute. But what we're more interested in today and through this section is the instruction that's being given to the church on what to do about it. We should note three things in this section that will become clearer as it progresses, as the section progresses, things that show this as not just an even-handed back-and-forth dispute as well. There's a, a better and a worse here, perhaps even a right and wrong here that shouldn't be missed and will surely be helpful to see. But as we say that, what we're saying is that even though there might be a right and wrong here, the charge is not to make sure you're right, the charge is to accept one another in this disputable matter. To be gracious with one another. To recognize in the case of Jews looking to Gentiles, to recognize that, that this is a wrestling match for them. This is a hard adjustment and hard development to understand what it means to come into the company of believers. And for the Jews to the Gentiles to recognize that the, the amazing truths of the gospel that even the Gentiles can be saved. The, that statement that was made several times in the book of Acts. Wow! That, that's even what Paul meant in Ephesians 3, I think, when he said that the, the manifold wisdom of God was made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. What I think we read there in Ephesians 3.10 is the fact that the full extent of the salvation that was available in Christ 
wasn't understood even by the principalities and powers, even by the angels of heaven and the demons of hell until we saw the church, Jew and Gentile, together as one new man with the dividing wall of separation broken down through the work of Christ on their behalf. That that was when the full scope of the gospel was first understood on a cosmic scale. It's a glorious truth. And it's made known in the church. And what Paul is doing here now is calling the church to protect the unity that's accomplished in Christ as that transition is being made and as many more transitions like it will be made throughout the life of the church. So I said three things that will become clear and um, I don't know if it's already appeared on the screen, but I'm throwing a curveball to our slides folks back there. I preached right up to the edge of a slide, and then I started talking freelance, and uh, that always unsettles the people in the booth, I think. We're going to get to now those three things that become clear as this passage progresses. The first, Paul identifies one side of this dispute as weak. That's in 14.1 and in 15.1. He even describes them as weak in the faith, 14.1. And he describes the other side as strong. And he personally identifies with the strong. We need to see that in order to understand and appreciate the depth and clarity of what's being taught here. Paul identifies one side of this dispute as weak and the other side as strong and he identifies with the strong. That's the first thing we need to note. Second, he seems to clarify the key issue for the weak, not as Old Testament dietary law per se, but more as a desire to abstain from meat and apparently also from wine, as we see in 1421, which more likely then places this concern in the category of fearing that the meat and the wine may not meet the ritual requirements of the law. They might not be clean. They, they, they shouldn't be eaten or drunk because they've been used for nefarious purposes. Both were widely used in pagan religious rituals, both meat and wine. And so the inclusion of both here suggests that what the real problem was is not trying to continue on with the dietary laws so much as to avoid unclean food. So this dispute really then, if this is the case, is quite similar to the one that Paul addressed with the Corinthian church over in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. A scenario in which he stated there and he states again here that Christians are free. So the third thing we note here is that Paul explicitly stated his view. He took sides in this dispute right here in chapter 14, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So in other words, if it violates your conscience, there's the problem. But if it doesn't violate your conscience, there's nothing inherently wrong with this meat or this wine that keeps it from being eatable and drinkable. Okay? So it's helpful to to recognize those three, borrowing from a little bit later in this text, it's helpful to recognize those three in order to frame what we're looking at here and the sort of problem that's arisen that needs to be addressed by this closing charge toward unity. 
Still, even with these three, we would say that the overall charge is to welcome one another, to accept one another. And even though it might not be an even dispute, this charge of welcome one another and accept one another is issued equally and directly to both sides. That's the part that we need to wrap our minds around in order to appreciate the, the, the challenge of Romans 14 and 15. He's describing a scenario in which he actually favors one side over the other. But what he's doing is not instructing everybody toward that side. He's instructing people toward patience with one another and acceptance of one another and a welcoming of one another even in the midst of this dispute. Meaning that deeply held convictions can be honored in the church even while they're not necessarily resolved. That's a mature community that's going to allow that to happen. So it's worth seeing. It's worth noting. Now, one more thing before we walk through this text briefly, this brief text briefly. Now you see why we're only doing the first four verses this morning. There's a considerable amount of introduction, considerable amount of on-ramp into this passage. One more thing before we enter into the text. Let's Let's get in our minds what sort of difference this was. What kind of difference uh, it's that, that, that's separating these two groups. We've talked about it from a biblical perspective, but if this is the kind of instruction that still has merit to the church, what sorts of things might we look at in the church that have a tendency to send us the same direction that the Roman church was going here on food sacrifice to idols, perhaps, Instruction that we need to receive from Romans 14 and 15 in order to preserve the unity of this body today, 20 centuries later. Let's walk through that. A couple observations. First, it seems like it's, it's more of a matter of principle here that we're talking about with the Roman church than it is of practicality. In other words, there's nothing that seems to indicate that any immediate harm will come from one group eating or one group not eating. The food isn't poison, for instance. There, there isn't something you need to stay away from. It's a principle that's being communicated and a very practical example is being used, but the issue is the principle itself and how we relate to one another. So the choice of eating or not eating isn't being made on the sort of basis that, wow, it's going to harm you if you eat it. The problem is it's going to harm you in spirit if you're violating your conscience. It's not going to harm your body, although there could have been some thought that if you eat uh, unclean that the Lord himself will strike you in judgment. It has that kind of severity to it, but still, it's in the realm of principle that we need to see this issue. Second, it's important enough though that uh, be, even though it's a principle that each group really does believe that the other is doing the wrong thing here. And more, each group believes that God agrees with them that the other is doing wrong. So even though it's a principle, that doesn't just disarm it from being a powerful issue in the life of this body. Each group thinks they're right and each group thinks the other is wrong. 
And they think that their own loyalty to God on some level will be compromised if they go soft on that other group. Do you feel the tension? I hope so. In previous generations of the church here in America, there have been clear issues of this sort, of division where there's probably a clear right and wrong and yet conviction of such a depth that that you feel like you're failing the Lord if you give in or if you go soft. Consuming of fermented drink has surely been one of them in the history of the American church. Smoking, certain styles of clothing, especially at church, ties and jackets for men, dresses only for women, and even then of the right length and the right cut. Jeans for everyone? That was a disputable matter. <laughs> we remember a, an evangelistic event that happened at Jean's church when she was young, and it was during the late 60s. Sorry to date anybody here. Of, uh, <laughs> we actually remember the late 60s. A young lady came to Saving Faith in the course of a meeting, and she was talking with an older woman who prayed with her to receive Christ. And the next question was, well, what do I do next? And the older lady said, well, the first thing you have to do is take off those jeans. And um, fortunately, the young lady understood that she didn't meet immediately right there. But that was the perspective, that this kind of thing has shown up in the history of the church. Different forms of entertainment have been on that list. Things like dancing, card playing, in theater movies, and, and other recreational choices. They, they've all been part of this kind of discussion throughout the history of the American church. Different ones of these still linger in different ways today, but rarely to the point of dividing believers like they have in the past. Praise God for that. Although I'm not sure it's entirely Romans 14 kinds of developments that have kept it from being that. I think it's because... In all honesty, people just don't care that much anymore. We still have some who are troubled at casual attire worn in church on Sundays or, or the freedom others exhibit in the beverages that they consume or in the entertainment that they, that they select for themselves or for their families. So there's still some of that around in different forms, but it's not really familiar enough to us for all of us to enter into this together. I was talking with one of our people this week and a good illustration came up which was so easy. Um, all I did was spend a little extra time on it to help us enter into it this morning and I think it could be helpful to us. We had a pretty good illustration of just this sort of potential division that Paul is addressing over the past couple of years during the COVID pandemic and the wearing of masks. I think because as I look around, I don't believe anyone has on one this morning, we can talk safely about that at this point. It's a, it's a dispute that has largely moved past, and we can look back and reflect a little bit on it. Some thought that masks should be worn as a genuine protection from a new virus of unknown consequence. Others thought they should be worn as a symbol of submission to the governing authorities. Romans 13 was discussed a great deal during COVID. 
Still others thought that they should be worn as an expression of love for neighbor, identification with one another in a time of challenge and difficulty. But others thought they shouldn't be worn at all in resistance of government overreach. No small point, by the way. Or because of uncertainty over the protection that they actually provided. Or due to the psychological and sociological harm that they were causing as the very illustration of the sort of isolation that we were all feeling during that season. Masks suddenly became the point of discussion and potentially the point of division. We're still not agreed on who was right or who was wrong, who was strong, who was weak in that dispute. And the subject itself can still awaken some pretty strong emotions. I'm guessing there's some strong emotions in the room right now as we're talking. <laughs> but that's precisely what makes it a pretty good example for us to have in mind as we try to enter into the impassioned conflict in this passage. It's got to awaken our emotions or we're not going to understand what it is that Paul is calling us to implement here. We have to have strong feelings. And even if we're among those who don't have strong feelings about this subject right now in this room, we know that some very good friends that we love deeply do have strong feelings on each side. What do we do with that? So that is what makes it a pretty good example for us to have in mind as we try to enter into the impassioned conflict in this passage Engaging a topic that can incite quarrels over opinions. There's the language of verse 1. And cause us to despise one another or pass judgment on one another. As though giving in is somehow equivalent to being unfaithful to God. At very least, I believe we can recognize that the mask is not a central gospel principle. Although some would immediately want to add, but it's only one step away for reasons that we can note. So it's a good example. There's our entry. There's our on-ramp into Romans 14. Are we ready to go now? Let's do. Let's walk through this text together. We're going to handle verses 1 through 4 as a unit. No outline. You'll notice that there's no outline in your bulletin this morning. But... I did kind of label each of these verses. There, there are four, one, two, three, actually um, there are five because verse four splits into two. If you want to know how I just labeled the verses, we have the principle in verse one, we have the issue in verse two, we have the problem in verse three, we have the question, easily identifiable, in 4a, and then the remainder of verse four after the question is the resolution, all right? So there's the five steps we're using, but that really isn't an outline because this is one piece, four verses. We're just moving through that flow, but that will identify for you what we're looking at. The principle, verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. There's the charge. Welcome means more than we expect. I like the fact that ESV chose to use welcome, even though I think in this context, accept 
is probably more understandable. We can get our arms around and get our minds around accept in our relationships with one another a little more easily than welcome. But I like the word welcome because welcome means to accept the presence of a person with friendliness. There's a quality to the acceptance. It's not a mere toleration. It means to welcome, to receive, to accept, to have as a guest in one's home. It's not just to tolerate. It's, it's receive him into your circle. Receive him into your home. Literally, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. Don't bring him near just to take him apart. Don't invite him over just to talk about masks and to help him get over the hump. Treat him like a welcome guest, regardless of whether there's something on his face. So treat him as a welcome guest if he's wearing a mask or if he's not. The opposite of your preference. There's the principle. Welcome him. In the midst of a situation that awakens that kind of emotion, this kind of welcome is the calling of the believer. Verse 2, the issue. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. There you get to fill in the blank with mask or no mask in your half of the verse, whichever you prefer. But until verse 2 here, we didn't know what sort of dispute was occurring in the Roman church. We didn't know it was an eating thing. This is where the problem the issue is identified. This is where we understand what was separating them. It was a dispute over food. And as we get a little further in chapter 14, we see also over drink. If we just go with verse 2 here, we could think that the issue was the continuation of dietary laws. If we press on in the text, that's where we see that it was probably a clean-unclean thing. And we've already given that a pretty thorough description. So we don't need to spend longer with the issue. We used that and we explained that in the on-ramp section. On to the problem then. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Here's where you hear the even-handed rebuke and correction going to both sides. And the bottom line implication for both sides is, for God has welcomed him, whichever side we're talking about. Whichever him you're having to cease despising or cease passing judgment on, that him is welcomed by God. So this is something that's going on in the church. Listen to this quote one more time. I, I, I appreciate using this language from a, one of the commentators because it shows that it's not being shaped to send a subliminal message to anyone in the room. This was written on a page as a summary, okay? Paul's choice of verbs to describe the attitudes of each group is no doubt deliberate. Despise connotes a disdainful, condescending judgment, an attitude that can well imagine the strong majority 
who prided themselves on their enlightened liberal perspective taking toward those whom they considered to be foolishly hung up on trivia of a bygone era. The weak, Paul suggests, respond in kind by considering themselves to be the righteous remnant who alone upheld true standards of piety and righteousness, who were standing in judgment over those who fell beneath these standards, end quote. There is a wonderful description of what Paul is talking about here. This is impassioned division over a secondary matter, important a matter as it is. Despise connotes disdainful, condescending judgment, an attitude that we can imagine the strong majority who prided themselves in their enlightened liberal perspective taking toward those whom they considered to be foolishly hung up on the trivia of a bygone era. The weak, Paul suggests, responded in kind, considering themselves to be the righteous remnant who alone upheld true standards of piety and righteousness and who were standing in judgment of those who fell beneath those standards of piety and righteousness. This is a fierce and hot scenario. I use the words of another so no one will be led back into the passion of the debate about masks thinking I'm sending an implicit signal to anyone in the room. But don't miss the fact that this is precisely the level of passion that subjects like this kick up among us. Ones where we believe God sides with us. Even though his truth isn't coming under any threat at all. To finish this quote that I just gave you, the lengthy one, he finishes with one more sentence. Paul calls on each side to stop criticizing the other. That's the bottom line charge of this this opening paragraph and this text as a whole, Paul calls on each side to stop criticizing the other, to welcome him. All right? So there's the problem. Now the question that gets at that. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? There's the reminder of the humility going back to chapter 12. This question is posed to the weak and the strong all at the same time. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? Neither the strong nor the weak is honoring God by their response. Even though one of them may have been right in their conviction and the other wrong. Even if it were that strong, both of them were getting corrected and called to account by this rhetorical question. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? On to the resolution. The rest of verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Just as we saw earlier that vengeance is best left to the Lord. Remember verse 19 of chapter 12? Here we see that judgment in disputable matters is best left to the Lord as well. And our calling is to love one another in the midst of it. 
Each of us belongs to the Lord. We've been bought with a price. That's the way Paul talked about it to the Corinthian believers. And ultimately, we will answer only to God. He is our judge. We are his servants. The Lord alone is able to convict us, to call us to account, to, to justify us, and to save us. And he is the only standard, or his is the only standard, that we strive to meet. And we strive to meet that together. In fact, we encourage one another toward that standard. Now, our theme verse this morning, the one that appears on the cover of the bulletin, is, is our calling for today. This is the opening paragraph. This is the word of instruction that we should take with us. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. There's the heart. There's what we want. There's what we want to see in this body of believers with regard to issues like masks and others. And I would say, by the grace of God, he enabled us to get through that season. You know, and we know, right here and right now, that many of us didn't change our views at all. And some of them were very strongly held. But what we are called to see is that our love for one another in Christ and the blood of Christ that has reconciled us to himself and to one another runs deeper than that conviction. So it's not calling you to a uniformity that says put aside every strongly held conviction that you hold. It's saying recognize that the love of God in Christ goes deeper than all of those. And cling to one another in the midst of this dispute so that a division doesn't develop in the body of Christ that dishonors the Lord. Our call, whichever side we're on, is the same call, namely to welcome one another. We might say, let not the one who wears a mask despise the one who doesn't. And let not the one who doesn't pass judgment on the one who does. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed both. And right now, if you're inclined to remind me still of what I've forgotten about in this matter, small or great, that locks in whether we should have worn masks or shouldn't have. You're going to remind us of which side we actually belong on. I'm sorry to say it so plainly, but you're making Paul's point here. If that's what's in your heart right now, more than God help me love the people that disagree with me on things like this. And let it start in the body of Christ that we might know that love together. No gospel truth is at stake here. Only love of neighbor is being tested. And we're being enabled by God to see what sort of obstruction, what sort of stumbling block, to borrow the language of verse 13 a little later in this chapter, we're being enabled by God to see what sort of obstruction or stumbling block is important enough to us to go ahead and put it in one another's path and threaten the unity of Christ in our midst. That's what's being tested more than anything else. 
There are absolute truths. There are truths we would die for. There are truths that we would divide for. But these are not they. We can identify the primary issues easily enough when we're sitting in a, in a, in a conversation where we're just trying to identify them. But when we get in a situation where a secondary matter has become important to us and it's become the basis of an argument in the body of Christ, we can almost never see it as secondary. God help us in that. Because really, the primary things are easily identifiable. Secondary things are until they become important to us. That's the instruction that Romans 14 is giving us. And that's why welcome him is the charge that runs right through it. What Paul is calling us to here is to lean hard into the gospel so that nothing of this sort could have the impact that eating and drinking disputes were having there in Rome. And what we have seen all along in this letter is that the only thing that we can depend on is that gospel message. Only the love and the cleansing, the, the righteousness that is ours in Christ, received by faith in Him, can enable us to protect this unity in matters like this. But folks, that's our calling. And that lies at the heart of the joy of actually being together. It's when we see the Spirit of God doing that among us. So that will be my closing charge to you this morning. By the grace of God, recognizing that the grace of God alone can enable it, by the grace of God, welcome one another. Amen? Let's pray. And as we pray, those who are going to help serve communion and those who are leading in worship, please return to the front. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is a rich text of Scripture, uh, magnified in its richness by where it appears in this letter. And Father, it is a hard reminder to us in many ways. But hopefully, even beyond that, it's a helpful reminder to us. To remind us of the depth of the love that you have for us in Christ and the depth of the love that you enable through us toward one another because of Christ's saving work. I pray that you would help this body to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I pray that by your grace and for your glory, you would enable us to welcome one another, even on points where we're tempted to divide. And Father, I pray, as we have prayed so often, that you would accomplish here among us the fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience of the gospel, of reconciliation with you and with one another prior to your return where we will finally be free of the sinful disposition that stands in the way of it. 
Father, help us to know the sort of unity that Paul is teaching toward in this passage. And glorify yourself by developing it among us, I pray, on behalf of us all. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.